could be the church here. We're in Easter. When we enter into the Eucharist, when we take the bread and the wine in a moment, that's like the difference between someone knowing about cooking a good meal and then tasting the meal. So everything that I'm about to say is kind of waffle, really. I just wanted to caveat it and, and also um, kind of uh, give myself a get-out clause. Everything I say is kind of waffle because the experience of the Eucharist is so much more than what we can know or understand. So hopefully this will give us some sort of framing uh, sort, of, uh, sort of a frame for the Eucharist and some pointers about what we're doing and what it is. Um, but ultimately, uh, God has given us this meal uh, to experience in action, not just words. It's not just a cerebral thing. We don't have to uh, know all the right things to come to the table. Uh, we eat and we drink with each other as an experience of God's goodness, his mercy, and his grace poured out to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So eat the meal. Don't just be someone who knows about how to cook a good meal, but actually eat the meal. Get hungry. Get greedy. This is what the Eucharist is about. This is what God has put at the heart of our faith. I hope that makes some sense. Um, we're exploring the meaning and the power of the Eucharist literally from the Greek Eucharistia, uh, meaning thanksgiving, or to give thanks. Uh, and in a moment, Bex is going to lead us in the Eucharist, and she's going to open with these words, the Lord be with you, and we'll all, all say, and with thy spirit, or your spirit, because uh, thy is quite old school. We might say thy. I haven't actually looked at the liturgy. And then Bex is going to say, lift up your hearts. And we're all going to say, we lift them up unto the Lord. And then Bex is going to say, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, and we're all going to say it is right to give him thanks and praise. So if you take nothing away uh, this morning, and there will be very little to take away, but if you take nothing away, what we're doing is celebrating. We're, we're giving thanks. At the heart of our faith is a joyful celebration of thanksgiving and praise. Does it mean we have to pretend that everything's okay? No, because the praise that we offer is to a God who came and suffered and knew what it meant to, uh, to, to bear a human likeness and to suffer the ignominy and the disgrace of the cross. So it's not, uh, it's not a celebration without grief. It's not a celebration uh, without sadness, but it is a celebration that in Christ, uh, somehow, mysteriously, uh, God has raised him up so that we can give thanks and praise to the one who calls you by name and calls me by name. Quick recap. In week one, uh, Matt T. reminded us that at the Eucharist, we come into the presence of the God who hosts. What does that mean? With God, all are welcome because God welcomes all. With God, all are welcome because God welcomes all. What does that mean for us? It means we budge up. All right, we're a church that budges up. We squeeze in to create room around the table for anyone and for everyone. Whatever you think of the person next to you, they don't look like me. They don't believe the same things as me. They don't have the... Well, hopefully they do believe the same things as you, that Jesus is Lord. But beyond that, they have different politics. They have different uh, styles. They have different music playlists. But do you know what? The person next to you is someone whose company God desires. And God wants them at the table. And so we budge up. We want to be a church that budges up. In week two, Bex explored how at the Eucharist we encounter the reality of the God who gives. The Eucharist reminds us of God's decision to give everything. He is God, the giver. And that shifts our perspective, right? Or at least it should. It means that God loves me. And God loves you. And God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son. So that in the Eucharist, you and I 
had to quick start. You and me, you and I, you and I. You and I can start to see the whole world as somehow worthy of the glory of God. The broken places, the dingy places, the white noise spaces, the empty spaces. You at 2 a.m. in the morning when you wake up and think, oh my goodness, what is going on in my life? Uh, you are down a backwater, a cul-de-sac. That place is worthy of the glory of God. The Eucharist gives us power to see the world, some people say sacramentally. What that just means is a place that is worthy of God's love. If God loves the world so much, then it doesn't matter what you really think of it it might be dingy grimy dirty messy broken but God loves it and so we can start posturing behaving in the world as though we are agents of love of God's love in a world which is filled with darkness and death the Eucharist locates us and relocates us and relocates us week after week after week within the never-ending light and life of God that was week two in a week three uh, Steve showed us how at the Eucharist we are invited in by the God who forgives Christ fills the hungry with good things, many, many things, and among them is forgiveness. Steve left a wonderful challenge for us last week. The only people who don't receive forgiveness in the Gospels are those who aren't hungry. If you are seeking forgiveness uh, anywhere other than at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, you're not hungry for this meal. And so one of the prayers that we want to have over the church is that we would be a community that hungers and thirsts for Jesus. It means when we come to the table, we haven't filled ourselves up with other stuff, that we're hungry for God because Christ fills the hungry with good things. And today, we are looking at the God who transforms. And the transformative power of the Eucharist is found in the ordinary the extraordinary, and ultimately the transformative. The Eucharist is ordinary, it is extraordinary, and it is ultimately utterly transformative. The Eucharist is ordinary. It is, I forgot I had some slides. Oh, yes. (laughs) We've raised a head. lost all momentum. Is it going? There we go. Boom. That was the intro. We've done that. Check. Yes, there we are. We've caught up. Didn't have loads of slides. (laughs) But I'm going to hold it in my hand just to reassure myself and you that I've um, spent some time putting these together and I don't want them to go to waste. Um, The Eucharist is ordinary. It's bread. Um, And we think, surely God must be mistaken. Surely if we're spiritual, if I'm coming to church, if I've rolled out of bed early to get to church, I'm expecting something spiritually shiny, right, at the front. Make me do some exercise. If I sign up to Good Gym, I expect to really have a workout. And at the heart of Christianity is the ordinary bread of Christ's body. And it is utterly ordinary. It's so small it can fit in your hand. God has made himself small so that he can fit inside the palm of your hand. There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament. There we go. Oh, I clicked ahead there. We're on that slide. Good. 
the king of Israel, and many consider him the greatest king Israel ever had called David, has a moment where he's going to fight Goliath. I'm not going to go into the story because you probably know it, and if you don't, you can look it up later in 1 Samuel 17. It's a wonderful story. Or in any kid's Bible, it's a great story. But there's this moment where David, before he's about to fight this champion warrior, is offered the armor of the king of Israel at the time called Saul. I probably confused you. At that time, David isn't king. He's anointed to be king and he becomes the greatest king. But at this time, he's not king. The king of Israel is Saul. And Saul says to David, you'll need my armor if you are going to fight such a mighty warrior. And here's what we read. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul because I am not used to them. So David took them off, and then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Surely not good enough. Surely not technologically strong enough. And yet it was the means by which God outworks his grace in the life of David and through David in the life of Israel and through Israel in the life of the world. He defeats the greatest warrior of the day with a slingshot, a pebble, and a staff. When we come to the table of the Eucharist, we receive bread. And the bread is the body of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 26, uh, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And so maybe you've come today looking for some magic or some super spiritual wisdom. If I can just make myself presentable, if I can just self-improve enough, maybe God might accept my offering. Maybe God might accept my life. And what you encounter is bread. And what that is, is at the heart of our faith, God saying to you, maybe you just need to eat. Maybe you just need a, a drink. Maybe you need to receive from me instead of trying to do for me. God doesn't need you on your best day. He loves you on your worst. God doesn't need you all shiny and polished. He, he meets you broken and lost. And when we encounter the bread, what God is saying is, would you please stop trying to be shiny and self-improve and just eat my body and receive the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Eucharist is so ordinary but it's what God has given us to celebrate. So let's start getting used to the ordinariness of the Eucharist. Next, the Eucharist isn't just ordinary, it is extraordinary. Bread is a sign of the deeper story within a story. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we have many stories. We all have stories to do with our families or our friends, right? And if we encounter something, for us personally, it means something, although no one else would understand it. For me, sugary tea. Whenever I get a really sugary cup of tea, not every single cup of tea is sugary, but every now and again I just feel like sugary tea. I have three, four, five spoonfuls of sugary tea. And what it takes me back to is a time when I was really little, about three or four, four or five. I used to visit my grandfather. He was called Bill. And, and my mum and dad used to send us into my grandparents' room so that they could have a, a lion. And my granddad, Bill, 
He used to let us have as much sugar in our tea as we liked. And we were three or four years old, and we used to sit there and enjoy. Uh, I used to have five teaspoons of tea in the first cup, and then I would have five again in the second cup. And, and I loved Bill so much. He was a gentle, beautiful, amazing grandfather who I have very beautiful memories of. When I, when I taste sugary tea, it drags into the present that legacy of gentleness and kindness and love that I received from my grandfather. I hope that makes sense. All of us will have smells, signs, symbols and stuff that will drag something into the present from the past. Those are mini stories, stories that are personal to us. Then there are midi stories. These are middle, in-between stories. And I put Cantona there, and it is Eric Cantona. I must be careful about mentioning Cantona here. But we have per- stories that are personal to us, and then we have stories that do with clubs or societies or groups to which we belong. I love this poster. If it's going to come up, there is a delay on the clicky thing. This is a great poster. It says, 66, 1966 was a great year for English football. Eric was born. And in Manchester, they, they often put this poster up. And what that means is, obviously in 1966, we all think, amazing, England won the World Cup, but if you're a Manchester United fan, your first thought isn't that England won the World Cup, it's that Eric Cantona, one of the greatest living legends in Manchester United footballing history, was born. I said I I thought in Finsbury Park, so near to the Emirates, I better do something with Thierry Henry, and Thierry Henry was born in 1977. And there was nothing really that noteworthy in 1977, so we couldn't really do it. Um, but apparently the Apple II Mac uh, was, was sold on the market by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And what else happened in 97? I wrote this down. There was something else that was cool. Oh, Star Wars happened. I'm not a Star Wars fan. Apologies if you are. I know there'll probably be some Star Wars fan, but 1977, Star Wars came out. Isn't that amazing? But if you, if you love Arsenal, your first thought won't be Star Wars or, or Apple II. It will be Thierry Henry was born in 1977. Where am I going with this? Let me just check my notes. And where I'm going with is that when we come to the bread, when we eat bread at the Eucharist, Um, it drags a whole story into the present. And the story is of the Passover. Uh, Jesus performed the Eucharist, uh, the Last Supper, the night before he was crucified on Maundy Thursday that we as a church are going to celebrate in a couple of weeks' time or 10 days' time. And the Passover was the Jewish celebration of uh, the moment where um, God saved his people from Pharaoh who was a hard-hearted, ruthless tyrant. And it took him 12 plagues. And then, um, and then the story of, um, and then the story of the death of the firstborn uh, in Egypt. And then the liberation, but then he had also split the waters um, in order to let the Israelites pass through. I haven't practiced that well enough. I hope that makes sense. The Passover is a story of the Exodus, the salvation of Israel uh, by God's mighty, mighty hand. And so when Jesus is saying, this is my body, that I give to you, when you eat the bread, we're not just commemorating a past event. Oh, it's it's God who saves. We're remembering that it is Jesus who saves. Jesus is the Lord of the Exodus. Jesus is the Lord of the Passover. Jesus is the one who guided God's people through the waters, and he's here now. It's not just a nice memorial. It's not nostalgia. It's not that we're looking back, but we get to encounter and live within and take within ourselves the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord who saves. 
Isn't that amazing? It's unbelievable. It is very hard to get your minds around. In fact, it's impossible to get your minds around. But when we eat the bread, that is what we're doing. We're entering into a deeper story, the story of the God who saves. Where are you right now in your life? Where do you need saving? You might not be standing on the ed- edge of the Red Sea with a marauding army behind you, but you may be lost. You may have some big questions uh, which have to do with relationships. Uh, maybe there's financial need. Uh, maybe there's just uh, something ordinary. Day to day, you're struggling mentally or emotionally with how to cope with this big and crazy and beautiful and terrifying world that we live in. Well, well I want to encourage you that when you come to the table in a moment and eat the bread, uh, you, you, you are encountering the God who saves. And that's amazing. He's not a magic fairy. He's not your fairy godmother. He doesn't just wave wands and solve everything. But he is the God who saves. And therefore bring to him all that you are, wherever you are right now. And as you come before him, just remember uh, that God saves. Apparently you can go 8 to 21 days. I looked this up on Google. Google obviously is the source of all true things. But you can go 8 to 21 days without food or water. Apparently you can go longer with water, but if you have no water and no food, you can live between 8 and 21 days. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He also said, I am the water of life. I'm living water, John 4. If we aren't a community that is regularly feasting at the table of Christ's body and his blood, and not just at the table, although this is the focal point, but daily, reading scripture, praying, encouraging each other, you know, outworking our faith in the nitty-gritty everyday reality that we live. If we're not doing that, we're starving ourselves. And, and honestly, 8 to 21 days, you might think I had a great Sunday, but by Friday or by the following Friday, you're exhausted, you're tired out. Eat the bread of Christ. He is the God who saves. And lastly, there's the macro stories. And this is the story of um, God. When you become a Christian, it's as if nothing's changed, and yet everything's changed. It's utterly familiar. It's not like you've, um, it's not Plato, we don't, worship, we don't follow the same teachings of the Greek philosopher Plato who thinks that when you become a Christian you develop wings and sit on the clouds and drink Red Bull with the angels. It's not like all your problems are solved, but, but somehow with the power of the Holy Spirit inside you, at work in you as, you, as you outwork your faith with Jesus, all the familiar things have suddenly become unfamiliar. It's as if you're in the same place, but you're in a different country. It's as if you've crossed a borderland into somewhere which you, you can sort of recognize some things, but, but actually the language is different. And if we can watch this video in a moment, I don't know if we can, we're, we're going to give it a go. I just think it's a beautiful illustration of what happens when we become a Christian, when we experience the transformative power of the bread and the wine, that is Christ's body. So Joe, I don't know whether we can or not, don't worry if we can't, but, um, because I can explain it, but... Hopefully, this is a video that, for me, expresses in a beautiful way what it means to be in the same place as you always were, but everything is different when you become a Christian.
just as we try and get the sound, what this is is um, the story of... We're lying on the ground. We, Joe, do you think we could go back to the beginning? Is that all right? Amazing. It's a story about a tree in Kew Gardens. I'll let you do the rest. It's kind of self-explanatory. At the time, it was de- I was devastated. You know, trees that you've been looking after, that you'd grown to, uh, to, to recognise and be familiar with, were, were lying on the ground. Here we are in uh, Kew Gardens, or Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, just south of London. In the gardens we have about 14,000 trees and uh, an incredible diversity representing all corners of the world. There's not been a storm like this in the South Coast counties for as long as anyone can remember. Certainly the scale of the devastation hasn't been experienced since the Second World War. In 1987, on the 16th of October, we had a, a storm that came in from the southwest. Very strong winds that wasn't really predicted. Houses and blocks of flats had their roofs torn away. People were rescued by firemen from buildings in danger of collapse. In the southeast of England alone, we lost 15 million trees in the space of about an hour. And here at Kew, we lost over 700. The canopies were like the sail of a tree, so the wind hit the canopies and literally pushed them over. The Turner's Oak was probably the, um, the kingpin of the whole story. This whole tree had been lifted out of the ground. And we're talking about a big tree that would have been nearly 200 years old. The whole tree had lifted out of the ground and then sat back. So the whole root plate had come out. It had slightly tipped and leaned over. Before that, we knew that the tree had been slightly unwell, but this was an opportunity to save it and give it a last chance. We managed to push it back and, uh, and we propped it. So the props are still under the tree to stop it falling over again. And we decided that that would be the last tree to cut up. We would clear all the arboretum and then come back to that. So three years later, we came back to that tree, picture of health. And we just couldn't really understand why. What we realised was over the years, people walking into that had compacted the soil around the roots. The root plate was very compacted. I use a wine glass as, a, as an example of a tree. The piece at the bottom, the base that sits on the table and stops the wine glass falling over, is the root plate of, of a tree. The root plate is very shallow. So on that night, nature picked the tree up out of the ground, shook the roots back in, and then lots of porosity in the soil so that the oxygen could get back down to the roots and, and any water. And what we realised was that every other tree at Kew was suffering from the same problem. That was the start of a new era in, in tree management, not only at Kew, but in gardens across the world today. Over the years, companies have developed machinery specifically for soil injection and, and what we call air cultivation, and from that came the air spade. Trees are like people. Trees are moody, they stress, but they're beautiful when they're happy. The golden rule that I got from the storm was that you've got to copy nature and run with her and you'll succeed. Whenever I walk past the Turner Oak, 
I always have a smile and a chuckle. I'm getting a bit <laughs> emotional now. Um, <clears throat> she's put more than a third of her growth on since the hurricane. So I walk past her and pat her, stroke a leaf so she knows I'm there and thank her really. I love that video because um, it says so much that would take me days to explain, I'd probably never get there, about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to come to the table and what it means to eat the bread and the wine. This is oxygen. The Holy Spirit is the breath of life and it's nutrients. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And many of us have been in the last couple of years through a storm. Uh, uh, COVID has, has in many ways upended so much of what is familiar and known. And, and the personal implications for that, we mentioned the cost of living crisis with jobs and money and many ways relationships. In terms of our geography as well, uh, it feels like we have been hit with an epic storm. And many of us feel, I would say, like that tree that has been uprooted. And what I want to let you know is that when you come to the table now, it, it is God saying, can I replant you? It, it may not be somewhere new. It may be in exactly the same spot. Uh, but can I replant you in the power of my Holy Spirit? Because where the Holy Spirit is, Jesus is. And where Jesus is, the love of the Father is being poured out uh, on everyone who is in Christ. So can I invite us to stand? We're going to um, perform the Eucharist in a, in a few moments. I think the band are going to come and, and play to us while the table is set up with a smorgasbord of bread and wine and delicious things. So if you're hungry, you haven't got that much longer to wait, don't worry. Um, but, but this is where my ramblings end and we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us, to make us hungry, to make us hungry for this meal that we would be filled with so many good things in Jesus. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill us afresh this Sunday morning? Always say it, when we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, some people have physical responses to that, and that's normal and natural. Might get burning hands or a hot flush in the face or, or maybe shake or, or maybe sometimes people want to cry because the love of God stirs up anything unlike itself. And others of us will feel, feel nothing, nada, not a jot. And I want to say both of those are fine. So I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit and I encourage you, if you feel like it, it's the only thing that matters that in your heart or maybe even out loud, or with your body in your hand, you say, Lord, would you fill me with your Spirit? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Replant me. Oxygenate my roots. Where I'm dying, where I feel sick, Breathe your life upon me. Come, Holy Spirit. I stand.